Now I'm convinced that every single person you encounter with Jesus is going to change them. Either you become harder and more determined to go against the Lord and you become as your father the devil or you surrender to him and he changes your life for good. But either way, you are changed by Jesus. You cannot encounter Jesus and, and be Switzerland. Jesus demands a choice one way or the other. You may wrestle with that choice for a while, like Jacob wrestled with God, but you have to make a choice. I know that as we share the gospel, we need to be theologically correct. We need to have the basics of the Christian faith out there. We understand that the gospel is that Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, and rose again according to the scriptures. But I think often when we talk about the Bible or theological truths, we can get ahead of ourselves when talking to unbelievers. And unbelievers or believers of different elks, they can argue with theological truths. They can debate Bible passages. They can reinterpret Bible passages um, all they want. But no one can argue with your story. And for those of us who have been redeemed, we know one thing to be true. That we were one way before we were saved and now the life that we're living is completely different and the only thing that made a difference was Jesus. And so Paul, as he's going to outline his testimony, ironically to people who were just trying to kill him, I love that Paul's passion for the gospel was such that these people were trying to kill me But by the way, a crowd has gathered. And so what better thing to do with a crowd that has gathered than to share the gospel? It would only be through a divine outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the exact right time where I would have the same mindset. Because from a human perspective, if people are trying to kill me, I'm going to run the opposite direction as fast as I can. But Paul, divinely inspired, says, I'm going to take the opportunity to share the gospel. So we can learn a lot from our brother Paul. And today we're going to start in Acts 21, verse 37. Acts 21, 37. Now, as I was studying this, I was reminded of the fact that Paul gives his testimony specifically on at least three occasions. One is this occasion where he is testifying to Jews. One is in Philippians where he is laying out his credentials and saying to the Philippians, this is why I have the authority to speak to you. 
And one will be when we get to his testimony before Herod Agrippa. In this case, he is testifying to Jews. In the case of Herod Agrippa, of course, he's testifying to Gentiles. And he will talk about his testimony to Gentiles in this testimony as well as we go on. Uh, and I think also he testifies in the epistle to the Thessalonians, which is a testimony to Gentiles. I might have gotten that mixed up. But anyway, Paul uses his testimony on several different occasions for different groups of people. And yes, in his epistles, he takes the time to dig deep into theological truth. But when he's dealing with groups that haven't heard the gospel, he shares his story. Because anybody that knew Saul of Tarsus and then knew, met Paul, the apostle, knows that even though they had the same body, they were a completely different person. Why? Because Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So let's read the first four verses here. As we close out Acts chapter 21, I have titled this message simply, Paul gives his testimony. So the first point is Paul's request and credentials. Paul's request and credentials. Acts 21, 37 says, And as Paul was led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee, who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art thou not that Egyptian? which before these days made us an uproar and lead us out into the wilderness, 4,000 men that were murderers. But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with his hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spoke unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying. So we have a situation where they thought that Paul was an interactionist. And he says, I am a Jew. That's the first thing out of his mouth. And then he says, I am of Tarsus. Why is this important? Because the, the fact that he was born, Saul of Tarsus meant that he was a Roman citizen. He was not some insignificant Jew. He was not an Egyptian insurrectionist. He was a Jew of Tarsus. And that gave him credibility with this Roman leader. And so he gets licensed. He stands on the stairs and beckons with his hand. And the people go silent. Now, if that isn't the power of God. I don't know what is. Because these guys were going to carry him away to kill him. He was rescued by the, the employees of this Roman guard because they didn't want uh, a riot in the streets. Not because they had any real affinity for Paul, just because they wanted 
to get rid of the situation. But now they go silent and Paul is given the opportunity to speak. I'm always fascinated by this too because there were no microphones back then, but he was able to speak to a large crowd of people. And so here's what we read from Alexander McLaren. He says, though bruised and, and hustled and having but a minute or two beforehand looked death in the faith, he is ready to seize the opportunity to speak a word for his master. There is nothing more striking in Paul's character than his self-command and composure in all circumstances. This ship could rise to any waves and ride in any storm. It is not easy to disturb a man who counts not his life dear if only he may complete his course. If God is our rock and our high tower, we shall not be moved. And I'm reminded of the proverb that says, uh, the name of the Lord is a strong tire, tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. And Paul is trusting in the name of the Lord. If one of you gentlemen could look up 1 Peter 3.15, 1 Peter 3.15, this should be a familiar verse to all of us. And uh, it is often a verse of conviction to me. Um, but it's something that I endeavor to live by. First Peter 3.15 But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Does that say be ready sometimes? Does it say be ready when the sun is shining, when everybody likes you? No, it says be ready always. And this is something that Paul was practiced in. Remember in Acts chapter 20, he's telling the people that he was ministering to, I am innocent of all your blood because I have made known to you the truth of God, the truth of the gospel. Now, I can honestly say that I didn't, haven't taken every opportunity to share the gospel. But I have definitely made it a practice to allow God to show me when I will have another opportunity to share the gospel. I remember one time, I think it was last summer, um, I was waiting to go into the dentist, or maybe it was after the dentist, and my mom wanted to go into the retail shop right next to where our dentist is, and Wyoming, Michigan, and there was a lady there who was, I i don't forget if she was shopping or if she was a friend of someone who worked there, and we just started talking about life, and I was able to give her my testimony. I gave her my card. I don't know how she's doing. She never contacted me, but I was able to give my testimony there. I didn't expect to give my testimony, but when I tell my story, Jesus is the most important part of it. So, that was a great opportunity to share my testimony. I have a little story here. It says, I was speaking at an open-air crusade in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Billy Graham was to speak the next night, and he arrived a day early. He came incognito and sat on the grass at the rear of the crowd. Because he was wearing a hat and dark glasses, no one recognized him. 
directly in front of him sat an elderly gentleman who seemed to be listening intently to my presentation. When I invited people to come forward as an open sign of commitment, Billy decided to do a little personal evangelism. He tapped the man on the shoulder and asked, Would you like to accept Christ? I'll be glad to walk down with you if you want to. The old man looked him up and down, thought for a moment and said, Nah, I think I'll wait for the big gun. I think I'll wait until the big gun comes tomorrow night. Billy and I have had several good chuckles over that incident. Unfortunately, it underlines how, in the minds of many people, evangelism is the task of the big guns, not the little shots. What did Paul say in his epistles? He said, you are my epistles, known and read of all men. Yes, there may be some of us who are uh, gifted in evangelism in a special way, but we are all called to evangelism. We are all called to be ready always to give an answer of the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear. And that was from Good News is for Sharing, 1977. So now we're going to get into Paul's testimony, looking at Acts chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. And so here's what Paul says there. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make to you now. And when they had heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders from whom I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound under Jerusalem for to be punished. So Paul is laying out the foundation of his story. Remember, last time we talked about Paul doing this ceremony in the Jewish temple with Jewish brethren kind of in a way to prove that he was an anti-Jew. Paul observed Jewish customs. He honored the Jews. As a matter of fact, his love for the Jewish people was such that he said, if it would be possible, I would be willing to be damned for all eternity if all Israel could be saved. I was watching a sermon by David Gizek yesterday, and he said, or Friday, and he said, I don't know if I would have that kind of love for you, to be honest, that I would say I would be willing to go to hell if you all could be saved. But that was Paul's mindset. That is the passion that he had for his people. So he is making sure that they know I'm a Jew. I'm not ashamed of my Jewish heritage. That's the first thing he brings out. I also think it's interesting 
that he says, men, brethren, and fathers. He speaks to them with respect. He calls them brethren and fathers. He he will say in one of his epistles that we should treat younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters, and older men as fathers, and so forth. Because respect was important to Paul. And then he says something interesting, that he was trained by Gamaliel in the ways of the fathers, and he was zealous toward God as you are today. He acknowledged their zeal before God. Even though it was misunderstood, misappropriated, he still acknowledged their zeal before God. So I I find that very interesting. He's identifying with them. Uh, He's talking about being a true Jew. He was born a Jew. He was born a Roman citizen. But he was not a convert to Judaism. He was a, a, a Jew of all Jews. As a matter of fact, he says, I was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. I had all the outward credentials of being that. And then he talks about being born in Tarsus, which is which is a significant city. Tarsus was a respected intellectual center in that day, and his motive for mentioning his city of origin may have been to indicate that he was not an intellectual dimwit. So he's not just a simple guy who was not studied, in Philippians, he goes through all his credentials. And then he says, I count it all but loss that I may win Christ. And so that information um, I got from the website, which I mentioned before, Precept Austin. I thought that was a good observation. He was saying that I am intellectually equal or maybe even superior to you. And I still believe this to be true. Jesus is not a respecter of person, young or old, rich or poor, intelligent or or non-intelligent by human scale. He wants all of us. Let's look at Acts 8, 1-3. Acts 8, 1-3. And of course, we know that the Saul in Acts 8 is not the Paul in Acts 22. But we're looking at this to see the contrast and to see the truth of what Paul is saying. Acts 8, 1-3. If somebody has that, if they could stand and read it for us. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Saul, at this point, is still breathing out threats. As a matter of fact, I think that's how the beginning of Acts chapter 9 begins too, that he's still breathing out threats to the church. He goes and gets letters to go to Damascus and put people in jail and continue to consent to their murder. And then we're going to see in our next section here 
Paul's encounter with Jesus, Acts 22, 6-11, that Jesus changes everything. Now I'm convinced that every single person's encounter with Jesus is going to change them. Either you become harder and more determined to go against the Lord, and you become as your father the devil, or you surrender to him and he changes your life for good. But either way, you are changed by Jesus. You cannot encounter Jesus and, and be Switzerland. Jesus demands a choice, one way or the other. You may wrestle with that choice for a while, like Jacob wrestled with God, but you have to make a choice. Acts 22, 6-11 says, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus, about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me, and I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of the things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of the light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. So I find it interesting that God doesn't say here, turn around and go back. He says, go into Damascus and I will tell you what to do. He doesn't lay out his grand plan for Saul there on the road. He says, go and I will tell you what to do. This reminds me of the story of Moses, remember? God says, I want you to lead the children out of Egypt, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses hems and haws for a chapter or so. And God said, go and I will tell you what to say. I will show you what to do. But first you have to go. When he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he didn't say, go to this place and I will be with you. He said, go and I will be with you. He didn't show him the end of the journey, but Abram had to go to find out the rest. And I think so often with us, we want to know the end from the beginning and Jesus simply says to us, go. And so we see that Paul is going to Damascus and uh, he has a one-track mind and that's persecuting members of the way. He's doing this because he believes that is what God has called him to do. He's been blinded to the fact of who Jesus is. But Jesus has a plan that will not be thwarted. Aren't you glad that Jesus 
in his ultimate wisdom and plan cannot be stopped. I am. Because there's a lot of attempts made to stop the word of God. There's been a lot of attempts made to destroy the word of God. And yet it is still the best-selling book of all time. There's a lot of controversies surrounding the Bible, but the Bible will not die. We sing that song, the Bible stands. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted amid the raging storms of time. Its pages glow with the truth eternal and it uh, glows with a light sublime. It's true. And it has staying power. And it has historical backing. You know, there are so many people that will believe everything in their history book. But they won't believe the Bible, even though the Bible has more historical backing than many of the other events that we take as fact in our history. Think about that one for a moment. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul. Well, Luke uses the Greek name Saulus. Here, Jesus repeats his name in the Hebrew dialect, which is Saul. Repetition speaks of intensity. The idea is listen, listen up. It is an intention getter. Repetition of one's name was often associated with a warning or other important instruction. We see Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 22:11, Jacob, Jacob in Genesis 46:2, Moses, Moses, Exodus 3:4, Martha, Martha in Luke 10:41, Jerusalem, Jerusalem in Luke 13:34, and Simon, Simon in Luke 22:31. This repetition of Saul's name also recalls God's attempt to get the attention of young Samuel who had not yet learned to recognize the voice of the Lord, when the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. First Samuel 3.10 Does the Lord have to repeat your or my name to get our attention? That's an interesting question, which we all must consider for ourselves and again the source for this observation is precept Austin. so let's continue considering Paul's story by looking at 1st Timothy 1 12 to 16 1st Timothy 1 12 to 16 Cause I obtained mercy that in me 
first Jesus Christ might show forth all off and suffering for a banner to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So Paul is saying here that God showed him mercy so that he could be an example to us of the mercy that God will show. When I get frustrated that there are loved ones of mine that I want to come to the Lord, I think of the Apostle Paul and how people thought probably thought there's no way that Paul will come to know the Lord. And some probably thought that he was a spy, that he was pretending to be a believer. And then Barnabas, um, whose name means son of consolation, brought him and said, no, I've seen him. I've seen his earnestness. I know his contrition. He's the real deal. And Barnabas offered him the right hand of fellowship. And as a result, the apostles eventually accepted him. But Paul is basically saying here, if God can do that in me, he can do anything in you. Because I was like the worst of the worst. He actually said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He uses the present tense. Did you ever notice that the longer Paul walks with God, the less he thinks of himself? Because when he first writes about being called by God, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I think there's another passage where he says, I'm the least of the brethren. And then in this epistle, which is closer to the end of his life, he says, I am the chief of sinners. And yet he says, thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he deemed me worthy and put me in the ministry. What a wonderful thing. You see, if God didn't use flawed individuals, none of us would be here. But God loves to take flawed individuals and use them in spite of their flaws and conform them to the image of Jesus Christ and say, look, look what I did in Andrew's life. Look what I did in Demis' life. Look what I did in James' life. I can do that. In your life. And praise the Lord that he can. He says, you who are dead have been made alive and brought nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, we weren't just hanging on by a thread, our heads barely above water when Jesus found us. No, we were laying dead at the bottom of the ocean. No hope. And he pulled our rotting carcass out of the bottom of the ocean and he breathed life into us and we became new creations in Christ Jesus. That's the picture. Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins. He says the law was not sufficient to bring me to Christ. He says in Galatians, if I... Rely on the law to be saved and the grace of God is in vain. But he says the grace of God is not in vain. Because 
He is able to save to the uttermost all who call upon Him in faith. That's the truth. I remember when I was a kid hearing an interview that Dr. James Dobson was allowed to do in a maximum security prison of Ted Bundy, who was an awful person, who had done heinous things. But he said that Jesus Christ saved him and changed his life. He knew that he deserved the death penalty and the death penalty is what he got because of the justice system that we have in our country. But he knew, he told James Dobson, I know that I'm going to heaven because Jesus saved me. He is able to save to the uttermost all who call upon him in faith. And he saves us for good too. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Our final section today, we have looked at Paul's request and credentials. For our second point, we looked at Paul's background. We looked at Paul's encounter with Jesus. Now we're going to look at Paul's obedience to Jesus. See, it's not enough to encounter Jesus. We have to make a decision based on that encounter of what we will do. What did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So let's look at Acts 22, 12-16. And there we read. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight, And that same hour I looked up upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers has chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear his voice, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I just love the fact that Ananias, although if we went back to the original story, I think we'd find that Ananias has a conversation with God and he says, but God, you know what kind of man Paul is. And God says, yes, I know. But see, when I get involved in a man's life, his life changes. And I love the fact that we see in this verse that 
Ananias comes unto him and says, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. How often do we see someone make a decision for Christ and we kind of have this attitude, even if we don't say it, that they need a trial period before we believe they're saved. Now, I'm not saying that you give a novice a lot of responsibility in the church. Please don't get me wrong. We're told specifically not to give novices a lot of responsibility in the church. So that's not what I'm saying here. But I'm saying the first words out of Ananias' mouth when he comes to Paul is the word brother. So guess what? If you witness someone give their life over to Jesus Christ, they are in that instant your brother or sister. Do they need to be discipled? Yes. Do they need to be nurtured and taught? Yes. Do they need to be spiritually bottle-fed for a little while? Yes. But they are your brother and sister. So we need to remember that. And then Ananias lays out God's vision for Paul. And he says, The God of our fathers has chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth, for thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. Remember what Peter and John said in Acts chapter 4? Whether it is right to speak in the name of Jesus or no, judge you. But we can only speak of what? What we have seen and heard. And this is Paul's mission that he has given. And what a wonderful thing that Ananias urges him to get baptized. And we know from Acts chapter 9 that he immediately went into the synagogue and started preaching Christ. He didn't wait. Now, of course, later, Jesus is going to lead him into the desert of Arabia to teach him himself before he fully commissions him as an apostle. But we know that Paul did a 180 and the zeal that he had against Jesus because he thought that Jesus was against God was the same zeal that he had for Jesus after he was converted. And he said, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. So as we finish, can we look at Galatians 1, 8 to 12. Galatians 1, 8 to 12. Even if we or an angel from heaven preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, 
So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, that would be a curse. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Keep going. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I promised. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, I find it interesting that Paul says here, even if an angel from heaven were to come down and give you a different gospel, don't believe it. What is the basis of Mormonism? That the angel Moroni came down and showed Joseph Smith some gold plates and said, This is an additional truth to the Bible. So Paul was foreshadowing false teaching like this. He says, Even if an angel comes down from heaven and teaches you another gospel, don't believe him. Now, I don't believe that the angel Moroni was a real angel. But even if he was, he was wrong. And it's important for us to be able to decipher the truth from a lie. I'm just going to close with this story. It says, Fritz Chrysler, who lived from 1875 to 1962, the world-famous violinist, earned a fortune with his concerts and compositions, but he generously gave most of it away. So when he discovered an exquisite violin on one of his trips, he wasn't able to buy it. Later, having raised enough money to meet the asking price, he returned to the seller, hoping to purchase the beautiful instrument. To his great dismay, it had been sold to a collector. Kriesler made his way to the new owner's home and offered to buy the violin. The collector said it had become his prized possession and he would not sell it. Keenly disappointed, Kressler was about to leave when he had an idea. Could I play the instrument once more before it is consigned to silence? He asked. Permission was granted, and the great virtuoso filled the room with such a heart-moving music that the collector's emotions were deeply stirred. I have no right to keep that to myself, he explained. It's yours, Mr. Chrysler. Take it into the world and let people hear it. We have a message to share. Our Heavenly Father created us as exquisite instruments, and the beautiful music we are to make is the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We were made to be played. And that's Turning Point Devotional. What a wonderful truth. We were made to be played. As Paul said, and as I referred to earlier, you are on my epistles known and read of all men. What a wonderful thing it is to be used in the service of the Lord Jesus. Now, he will ultimately have his will done by whatever means necessary. But what a wonderful privilege it is to be a part of that. May we all commit to having our eyes open and seeking how we may serve the Lord better as we go into the world this week. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for its power. We thank you for Paul's story, Lord. We, we are so glad that you saved him, and we know that you can save us if we trust you. Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here that does not know you, that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.